road, and hopefully at the end of that road, I'm not going to be surprised. I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to come to the end of that spiritual journey that I'm on and then find out at the end of the thing that, uh, you know, it really doesn't deliver on its promises. And especially if you're like me and you've decided to kind of bank your eternal hope and your eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins on something as significant as Jesus Christ and something as rare as his resurrection, then I've got to have a sense at least of, you know, how can I have confidence that my faith is irrefutable? How do I have a reason for faith? How do I have a reason to believe that I'm not just taking, as I said a little bit ago, that blind leap of faith, but it's a faith founded on truth? Today we're going to look at the, at the resurrection of Christ as it relates to this. Over the last three weeks, we looked at three, not just one, but three good reasons to believe. We looked first at the how the, uh, the Holy Scriptures actually are not just a common book like other religious books, but they have the fingerprints of God all over them. Evidences in, in uh, evidences that show their, their uniqueness and their inspiration. We looked at the uniqueness of Jesus last week and how he truly stands out, both in his claims and what he delivers. But today we're going to look at the ultimate uniqueness of Jesus, and that is this question of the resurrection. Because if you want to follow the outline that I've provided for you today as we walk through some of this, I want to show you how important the resurrection is, even as declared by Christianity and its enemies. I want to then go on and show you what what else could be offered as explanations for the missing body of Christ if you don't believe in the resurrection. How in the world do you explain it? Uh, Skeptics and cynics have been trying to do that for, for decades, in fact, centuries in fact, for almost 2,000 years now. So the reality is we're going to take a look at some of that. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, so, okay, if he is risen, then what is the big deal for my life today? How in reality does that change everything for me? Those are the three questions. First, let's look at the claims of Scripture in terms of the, uh, the significance and the importance of the resurrection. Turn with me if you have a Bible today, or you can pull one out of the pew if you want to, or not pew seats, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the passage we'll be spending most of our time in. I'll give you a lot of the highlights since it's Easter. I'll give it to you on the screen, okay? But open the book if you have it. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the claims of the importance of the resurrection. Pick it up in verse, in verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you, the Apostle Paul writes, as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. In other words, just as the Scriptures predicted, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, as according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom even remain until now. In other words, you can go find some of these people and ask them if you don't believe me. The eyewitnesses were still alive when this was written. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have died or fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, Paul writes, he appeared to me also. I am the least of the apostles. And then he jumps down and pick it up with me as we see the importance of this. Um, When he says, in fact, the the essence of it is captured in verse 3 and 4 that he was raised on the third day just as Scripture predicted, according to the Scriptures. 
Now, there have always been skeptics. There are skeptics of the resurrection from the very get-go when it happened. In fact, look at verse 12 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. It says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, then how do some of how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because some people were teaching even then that, you know, something, this doesn't happen. The resurrection uh, does not happen. The skeptics declare that there is no resurrection from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And you see, not everybody buys into the Easter story. We know that. In our culture, for many of us, and even in this room, or for many of those in our culture especially, this is very much like celebrating Santa Claus at Christmas. It's kind of something that has some religious roots, but it has kind of become become kind of a great secular holiday. And, And the focal point, to be blunt, is not really the death of Christ, it's the death of about, I just checked this, this weekend, estimated 900 million what? No, chocolate bunnies, okay? 900 million chocolate bunnies are going to hit their demise today. Now, we ought to be grieved by that, okay? Especially when they're tortured and eaten one ear at a time. It's interesting the kind of stuff people track around Easter, okay? Statistically, here's, a, here's something you probably didn't know, all right? 76% of all people who eat chocolate bunnies start with the ears. Okay? How many of you start with the ears? Can you just confess it? Okay, you torture those little creatures, you know? Yeah, just take the head off and be quick with it. But anyway, you know, the reality is that's, that's what Easter has become. One more fun, kind of fun stats. How many jelly beans do you think are going to be consumed? Huh? Any guess? 16 what? Wrong. Billion. Yeah, you had to kick it up. Not 16 million. 16 billion jelly beans are going to be consumed this Easter. How many of you are going to take down about a half dozen? I mean, mean, several dozen. Yeah, okay. How many of you have already done that? Okay, yeah. Last night, Becky gave me the assignment, by the way, of loading up. You know, our, our grandchildren are coming today. They're going to do the Easter egg hunt type thing, all in the name of Jesus. Okay, yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, but, you know, the reality is we're using plastic eggs because nothing worse. I learned this years ago. Some egg that doesn't get found, and it goes under a bush, and it just sits there. You ever broke one of those open about two months later? Yeah, not a pretty sight, okay? So we're using the plastic deals. You know, it's more eco-friendly anyway, at least according to the chickens. They like that. You know, but the reality is uh, but we're, we had to be filled with jelly beans. So, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, uh, you know, three beans for the grandchildren and one for Dale. You know, <laughs> Becky didn't see this. But anyway, I'm popping them all night. That's why I'm kind of wired this morning anyway. <laughs> now, I'm wired because the reality is this is an important topic. We make jokes about it. We may laugh about the bunnies and the jelly beans. But the reality is to a lot of the thinkers in our culture and for over the centuries, they are skeptical of this whole thing called Christianity. Here's a few quotes. Robert Hume said that, Religion in general is the alcohol of the soul. Another person wrote, it's a sort of clumsy sort of spiritual whiskey. In other words, you use it to just kind of numb up the pain in life, but in reality, it's it's not real. Robert Mills wrote, it's a distraction from the sourness of life. Mussolini wrote, "It's it's a species of mental disease. And many Americans aren't that hard on religion because today, to be blunt, probably more of the American mainstream thinking is that religion isn't so much a a mental disease or the sourness of life or an alcohol of the soul. But they do believe, most Americans believe that it's something that, you know, it's good to believe in something, but just don't take it too seriously. 
and certainly don't think that you have discovered the way. But in contrast to that, we see that Christianity says, you know something, Jesus made some radical statements. One time Jesus literally said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, for our culture, that is, a, that is an egomaniac out of control making some wild and crazy claims. But the reality is Jesus said, I, I, I can say that because I'm really going to deal with the problem that humanity has with God. I'm truly going to pay for your sins on the cross. You say, well, how do I know that you paid for my sins on the cross? I mean, that's a great claim, but how do I know that? He says, you'll know that because in three days I will come out of the grave because I am the sinless sacrifice for the world. And you say, well, now, well Dale, that's kind of hard to believe. But Jesus said, you know something, I understand that it's hard to believe and that's why I'm going to prove it. I'm going to rise from the dead. The importance of the resurrection in response to the skeptic is clear. Even the the early leaders of, of the Christian faith understood how central this was to the entire faith we called Christianity. Let me show you some quotes from 1 Corinthians 15 again. Pick it up in verse 14 if you have a Bible. It says this. The Apostle Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain... And your faith is vain. It means empty. you got an empty faith. Not a downgraded faith, but an empty faith. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. he gets even stronger. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Next verse, verse 18, he says this, Then those who have trusted or fallen asleep or died while believing in Christ have just perished. Next verse, verse 19, he gets even stronger and he says, And if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, in other words, just to enrich our life right now a little bit, but it doesn't affect heaven, doesn't affect eternity, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, if you list those out, here's what he just said. If Christ has not been raised in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 and following, it says this. It says, My preaching and your faith is vain, my, your faith is worthless. Those who have died trusting in Christ have perished. And we are simply people that should be pitied. Bring that list up. Yeah, bring that up as I read it. I want you to see the impact of that. That's a, that's a sad deal, isn't it? My preaching is vain, is empty, and your faith is vain, worthless. You, you're going to perish in spite of what you believe. And, and, and we should just be pitied because we could have been at the beach this morning instead of doing church. Now, this is the reality if the Christian faith is not true. So therefore, I think it's really important to ask, how can I have confidence that my faith is irrefutable, that it's got reason behind my faith in Jesus and his resurrection? And if I'm going to put my eternal destiny and hope in, of eternal life in Christ, then his resurrection is, is absolutely essential and key. Years ago, uh, as a young man, when I began to have some skeptical thoughts about my faith, uh, it's one of the reasons why I spent a lot of time reading concerning the resurrection of Christ. And I didn't just read uh, in interesting books by those who believe in it, but, uh, but also uh, explored some of the different ways in which, okay, if people don't believe it, then what do they think happened on that Easter morning? What did they think happened? And how would they explain it? And it was interesting because as I went on my journey to kind of investigate the resurrection of Christ and ask the second question of the morning, and that is, can I really believe? 
it, it was fascinating because it actually deepened my faith in Christ. It was a faith that I had picked up from my parents and my family, but I really began to own it as a young man when I looked myself into the question of, can I really believe this? And kids, by the way, if you're drawing some pictures, here's some fun pictures as you just listen to me talk that you can draw about Jesus and the resurrection. Question number one. There's really four central questions for those who challenge what we believe in the resurrection. Here are the four big questions. Did Jesus live at all? Some would say, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus is just a historical myth and he didn't even live. If he lived, did he really die when they buried him? Some would say maybe he didn't really die. Maybe, you know, you know, we hear stories of people being put in the box too soon. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden they're getting ready to do the, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, what's the guy called? The, uh, help, help me. Yeah, 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 the mortician, thank you. I need my wife on moments like this when I go brain dead. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, the mortician gets ready to deal with the body or they get ready, you know, you watch a CSI episode, you know, and all of a sudden, woohoo, he kind of winks at you and everybody jumps and, you know, and, and, oh, it wasn't, doesn't, wasn't, wasn't dead at all. You know, so maybe Jesus didn't really die. If he died, <clears throat> did his body really disappear from the grave or did someone just make a mistake? You hear people all the time making a mistake, going to the wrong place, the wrong, you know, the wrong, the wrong gravesite, and you know, and did that happen? Maybe, and, or if it did disappear from the grave, maybe there's some other explanations for how it got, uh, how it went away. We're going to look at those four questions. Question number one: Did Jesus really live? Did Jesus really live? Some would say that there's never really was a Jesus. That his later followers kind of made him up as a Messiah figure. Never even lived at all, and his followers made him up maybe a hundred or so years later. This would be called the myth theory of the resurrection, that the whole thing was a myth. To be honest, however, though, more recent scholarship has really kind of debunked this idea. Today, even, even the harshest critics of Christianity acknowledge that Jesus was real and that he really lived. Virtually no one believes this. Two weeks ago, it was interesting, we showed you some of the statistics on the reliability of the Bible as an historical document that it's one of the most accurate, probably the most uh, uh, historically accurate documents uh, that's ever been written in terms of any type of ancient history. We showed you that a couple weeks ago. Go back and listen online if you'd like to. Here's just one quote for the morning. Clifford Moore of Harvard University years ago wrote this. He wrote, I'll give it to you, Christianity knew its Savior and Redeemer not as some God whose history was contained in a mythical faith with rude, primitive, and even offensive elements. Jesus was an historical, not mythical being. No remote or foul myth obtruded itself of the Christian believer. His faith was founded on positive, historical, and acceptable facts. That quote would stand today. So if Jesus really lived, nobody really debates that much today anymore. This myth theory really isn't talked about. The second question is, did Jesus really die on the cross? You know, some have questioned the resurrection on this basis. For example, one critic proposed what was called kind of the swoon theory. That's what it was called. Now let me kind of explain this. The swoon theory would say this, that Jesus never really died, but he went into kind of a coma. Because of his time on the cross, he passed out. He was comatose. He was swooned. And they thought he was dead, but then in the cool of the tomb, you know, three days without food and water could do this to you. He woke up, unwrapped himself, 
uh, came out and people thought he resurrected from the dead. And that's how the whole thing got started. But the question is, is there any evidence for this? And what would, what would have to happen for this to be true? Okay, you know, for this to be true, what would have to happen? Number one, the soldiers guarding the tomb, who history tells us even reported his death, uh, the soldiers at the scene when he was crucified reported that he had died. History tells us the pilot wanted to be dead, no, no pun intended, dead sure that he was dead. So he, 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 he did a second check on whether or not he had died. Uh, it, it describes the fact that when the spear was thrust into his side, it was a common way that the Romans would check to see if the person had died yet. And it describes that both water and blood flowed out of the wound, which again is an early sign that death has occurred as opposed to, uh, as opposed to if you're not really dead yet, then only blood comes out. And, and it's, there's all these evidences that yes, he had died and the soldiers double checked it. Those who, um, those who loved him most would have had to be wrong also, not just the soldiers. The Jewish tradition was that they would take the body and they, they did a very thorough preparation of the body before they buried it. They took the body of Jesus that, to be blunt, from what he had gone through in terms of his scourging and his whipping and his crucifixion would have been an absolute bloody mess. And I, it's not even a pretty sight to even try to, to describe to you. But the body was never buried that way. It wasn't like they just kind of took Jesus off the cross and found an open tomb and pitched him in and rolled the stone. And, you know, but the reality is the Jews honored the body and because they believe, you know, they honored the body and, and, and they, and they did a, a very thorough cleansing of the body. So they would have handled the body, cleansed the body, washed the body, anointed the body. And then they would have wrapped it. Now, if you can picture the wrapping of a, of a corpse, Again, it was very interesting how this was done because the Jewish tradition was actually kind of a three-step process, okay? Let me just kind of illustrate it for you on the screen. They would first often start at the ankles and wrap. Now, what they're wrapping in, by the way, is usually linen cloth that was around a foot in width. So this is not like little ace bandages. You're talking about a foot-wide cloth being wrapped and overlapped as they wrap it. And then secondly, then they would fold the arms. They would wrap the arms down uh, a second layer, and then finally they would do the head wrapping thirdly. And, uh, and that's the essence of how the body of Jesus would have been wrapped. But not only was it wrapped, they also anointed these wrappings with a, with a fragrant gummy substance. Uh, the Bible says they used about 100 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and aloes. And this fragrant gummy substance that they anointed it with would have, in essence... Uh, probably the best way to describe it is it would have somewhat glued these folds of cloth together like a lightweight body cast. And, and to think that they did all of this and never noticed that he wasn't dead. Now, you can believe that if you want to, but to me, that is a leap of faith. To think that they could do all of this, the soldiers are wrong, the people anointing and handling his body to do all of this were wrong is very, very hard to believe. Also, by the way, this swoon theory would have to assume that he somehow woke up from the comatose state. Three days with no food and water, uh, he somehow rolled away the stone that was used to seal the entrance to the tomb. Uh, He then overpowered an armed Roman guard, which we'll talk about later, would have consisted of somewhere between four and 32 soldiers 
probably usually between four to 32 soldiers, not just, okay, let's post a guard so you go out and hire a rent-a-cop and have him stand there with his whistle, you know, to blow the whistle if anybody comes to the tomb. I mean, I was that kind of guard, okay, so I'm not making fun of that. I worked one summer in a, in a, in a uh, power station that was being built uh, when I was in college, and, uh, and I had a great-looking uniform, but my only weapon was my whistle, okay, so I was pretty harmless. That was not the Roman guard that we'll describe in a few minutes. The reality is it would mean also that he somehow overpowered the Roman guard, appeared as if he had risen from the dead, and then went on walking and talking in some way, fooling all of his followers, convincing them that he rose from the dead. The reality is when you really look at the history of how the body was prepared and how the tomb was guarded and everything else, this theory absolutely makes no sense. Very few people would buy into that even today. Question number three then is, if we assume that the evidence is clear that Jesus really did live and if the evidence is clear that he really did die, then the third question is, then was the body of Jesus really missing or did something else happen? There are two efforts to refute the resurrection. Let me hit them real quick that use this approach to say it never happened. The first is the idea that maybe they just imagined it. Maybe his followers wanted him to be resurrected so bad that that they hallucinated it. They, it was just a dream. They dreamed it. They thought they saw Jesus. And therefore, <clears throat> it grew into this entire myth that we now believe in. But do the facts again support this? See, one of the things about the resurrection of Jesus that's very unique uh, is that it wasn't a one-time deal. We have recorded at least 15 times over a six-week period that the risen Christ appeared to people and walked and talked and taught them as a risen Savior. For a six-week period of time in 15 different occasions, hallucinations just don't happen that way. The other thing is he appeared to groups of people, not just individuals. If he had just appeared to individuals, maybe it would be easier to believe that maybe they just imagined it. But the reality is Jesus' appearances, he didn't just appear one at a time to individuals. He appeared with different groups in one instant up to 500 people. And psychologists tell us that hallucinations don't happen to groups. Disciples also, thirdly, they, they weren't really expecting the resurrection. You know, hallucination, even if it's just to one person, is often driven by the fact that they really, really, really believe in it and want it to happen. The reality is when you read the text and the story in all four Gospels, one of the common things that everyone agrees on is disciples were actually full of fear, not faith. And when Christ died, they thought it was over. The story doesn't find them planning the first Easter sunrise service, okay? The, the women went to the tomb to further anoint the, the dead body, uh, you know, and to finish that process, not expecting a resurrection event. See, the reality is, if this hallucination theory was true, if they imagined it, there's one other thing that would shoot it down, and that is this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead and, the, and they imagined it, then what would his enemies, which included both the Romans, we know in history the Romans and the Jews were opposed to this new idea of the risen Jesus, what would the enemies do if Jesus had just been, if they hallucinated it? Answer? What would, they, what would you do? You would produce the body. You'd say, well, you know something, let's put an end to this rumor real quick. 
you know, we know the body. We know where he was buried. Let's go get the body and, 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 and let's shut this thing down on day two of the rumor. And that's what they would have done. So the hallucination theory just doesn't fit with the historical account. Lastly, when you ask the question, was the body of Jesus really gone? The, you know, one of the more common theories was, well, you know, maybe they made an honest mistake and they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, I mean, face it, this was a little bit before GPS. You got that? Yeah. So you couldn't Google body of Jesus, location. You couldn't say, Siri, where is Jesus? <laughs> you could try that. Some of you will try that before the service is over. I want to hear, Siri, where is Jesus? Okay, yeah. My wife will do that. But anyway, yeah, try it. Try it. In fact, try it after the service and tell me what Siri says. I'm curious. But maybe they went to the wrong tomb. That's the other theory. But again, the disciples were sincere, but they went to the wrong tomb. But do the facts support this? Number one, the women who buried him helped, who, 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 who handled the body helped bury him. The very women that went to the tomb were involved at the cross and the events after the cross. So they knew where he was buried. It was a disciple of his named Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who provided the tomb for him to be buried. He was the owner of the tomb. He knew where it was located. Thirdly, his enemies knew where he was located because they had sealed it with a Roman seal. Because when you want to make sure that something is not going to be messed with, Rome would put the Roman seal on it. And, when, and, and the fact that they sealed it with the Roman seal was a signal to everyone that if you mess with this, if you mess with the Roman seal, then it's under penalty of death. So it all of a sudden made this, this is not petty theft to go and mess with the body of Jesus. It is, it is a capital crime, okay, punishable by death if you mess with it. His enemies knew where it was. So finally, the bottom line again is the enemies of, of Christianity um, would have corrected the mistake, produced the body, and killed the new rumor in moments. So the reality is when you really look objectively at the entire event, here's what we know. We know that Jesus lived, Jesus died, he was buried, he, he, he was, his body disappeared. So the only real question is how was it removed? And that's the final question of the morning. How was it removed? And there's one common theory. The most common theory throughout history for those who oppose our faith is that it was stolen by the disciples. The disciples wanted to pull off this sham, so they stole the body, the stolen body theory. But how likely is it that the disciples who ran away in fear at the arrest of Jesus would then come back and take on an armed Roman guard and steal the body of Christ and then make up a story about a resurrected Savior and then stick to that story until they die. Very little chance of that happening. When you, when you, um, I saw a diagram a few years ago in a book of, of, of how the Romans would guard something when they sent, when they set a Roman guard. And, and <clears throat> this is just kind of for illustration purposes. But what they would do, if this is the cave opening and the stone on the diagram, and uh, kids, here's a fun one to draw, okay? So this is how the soldiers would tend to do. There would be four resting soldiers near the stone, four standing soldiers stationed just outside of that perimeter standing on the alert. So the idea that they set a guard and the guy kind of got a little sleepy, he was up a little late, he ate too many jelly beans, he falls asleep, disciples creep in, steal the body. That type image is a very immature image of how the Romans guarded something with the Roman seal. 
And besides, these soldiers as well were not rent-a-cops, okay? These were serious soldiers. And in fact, one of the things about the soldiers that guarded this tomb is under Roman military law, when you were set to guard something, especially if it had the Roman seal of importance on it, the reality is you fall asleep on duty, it's punishable by death. So it's not like you're just going to peel potatoes for a week and get mess duty, okay? If you're a soldier, Roman army, you fall asleep, you die. That's, that's military law of the day. So the reality is no entire group of soldiers is going to snooze out. Maybe the disciples just got really brave and they got their, uh, you know, got their fish hooks and they came after them. I don't know. But the reality is, here's what the average Roman soldier was like. It says, in his right hand he carried the famous Roman pike. This is written by historian T.J. Tucker. A stout weapon of over six foot in length, um, consisting of a sharp iron head fixed to a wooden shaft that could be used as a javelin or a bayonet. On his left arm was a large shield covered in leather, embossed uh, with a blazon in metalwork, which was carried by a handle. And a belt over his right shoulder uh, carried the shield. Um, the sword was a thrusting, approximately three-foot-long thrusting sword, and not so much a slashing but thrusting sword, hung on his right side, a dagger held uh, on his left side. The reality is uh, Roman soldiers were trained to do one thing, and that is to kill, and they were good at it. The reality is this idea of a stolen body doesn't fit the evidence. Number one is it doesn't explain the many, many, uh, the many, many times that different people testified to having seen the risen Christ. You don't do that if you steal a body. That doesn't happen. It assumes that these cowardly fishermen and tax collectors overpowered the Roman guard. It's kind of like the IRS agents versus the Navy SEALs, okay? It just doesn't happen. Maybe the soldiers fell asleep, but again, it's punishable by death. Not very likely. Then they had to move the stone without waking the soldiers. Not very likely. Then the grave cloth that I described to you later had to be unwrapped to steal the body and leave the grave cloths behind. But the reality is one of the strongest reasons that the disciples believed is when you read John chapter 20, uh, write the reference, look it up this week, John chapter 20, what it really describes in the resurrection is that when Peter came to the grave, even then he was an unbeliever, he was a skeptic, until he looked in and it says when he saw the grave cloths he believed. Because they were laying there wrapped. And people often misunderstand as if the grave cloths are laying uh, twirled up as if they've been unwrapped and rewound. No, what it describes is basically you see the grave cloths like a, like a collapsed lightweight body cast but no body. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't have to unwrap himself. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was able, we know from Scripture, to literally come through walls and go from place to place in his spiritual body. The reality is he didn't unwrap himself. The reality is he came through the grave cloths and they would have just collapsed and been laying there. Now, if you walk in and you find grave cloths in the shape of a body laying there collapsed, guess what? Your level of faith goes up real quick. That is what sealed the deal for Peter when he looked in the grave. The reality is the only real honest explanation is that the resurrection is a fact of faith and history. There was one historian who, when studying the resurrection, came to this conclusion. He looked at all the evidence, even as a skeptic of the, 
of the references and the eyewitnesses and everything who, who observed the resurrection. And he said this about it. He said, put it this way. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has more historical evidence to prove it than the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now, if you believe Lincoln was assassinated, maybe it's all a far, maybe Lincoln is alive today. If you believe Elvis still lives, then you perhaps have a case. Because after all, very few people saw Elvis, you know, could have had a fake Elvis, a lot of Elvis impersonators. Maybe Elvis is alive today. You can see where I could build a case for that easier than I could build a case for the idea that Jesus did not rise from the dead. There's more evidence for Jesus rising from the dead than there is virtually any event in human history. So the resurrection of Christ, if it happened, we have a reason to believe. And the resurrection of Christ, finally, as we wrap our morning up, is relevant to life today. The answer to that is yes, it is relevant. Because if Christ rose from the dead, then the things that he promised to do are real and can be trusted. He made three big promises. I call them the three universal needs that Dale has, but I think all of us have. Every one of us in this room need these three things. From my past, in Christ, I need to know that I can be forgiven. In my present, I need to know that Christ can help me change. And in my future, I need to know that he can deliver eternal life to me. Because I need forgiveness for my for my sins today. I need to know that Christ wants to help me be a different kind of Dale. And I need to know that in my future, that in Christ, I can inherit eternal life. And when you look at the scriptures, all three of those are clearly promised. This week, I'm not going to go to it in detail because this week, if you if you flip this outline over on the back, I've provided a five-part uh, devotional study on the importance of the resurrection to your life and my life. So you can walk through that this week if you're, if you're willing to do this. And, and if you're not signed up yet, sign up online and we'll send it to you that way. But here's what you learn. Romans 4.25 says that in my past, I have freedom from the penalties of sin. In other words, I'm free because Christ took my sins on the cross and died for them. And the resurrection proves that. Romans 4.25 says, Christ was delivered up for my sins and he was raised from the dead for my justification. The resurrection, in essence, is God's stamp of approval on what Jesus did on the cross. It proves that God the Father said, it is really finished. You really did pay the price for their sins. And he brought him out of the grave. Number two, in terms of my present, it shows that I have the freedom from the power of sin in my life. I'm not a slave to it anymore. I can change over time as I walk with Christ and allow Him to do His work in me. He promises that He will change me. And see, that's great because I need to be forgiven and I need to be changed also. And so do all of us. You know, my wife really doesn't just want a forgiven husband who's still a jerk. She'd rather have one who's forgiven and who stops being a jerk. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. And that's probably not true of just Becky. That's probably true of every man and woman, mother, father, daughter, son in the room. The reality is we need the change that Christ provides. Lily Tomlin, uh, the comedian, remember her? Some of you are older like me, can remember Lily Tomlin. She once said this, the problem is, you know, with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. So even if you're winning the rat race, but you're still a rat, that's not a good deal. 
Much better to be changed. Last but not least, my future. I have freedom from the presence of sin forever and ever. Jesus said, I will come out of the grave. I will conquer death as proof to give you a real picture of the fact that I will someday give you resurrected life and that I will be the first example in human history of what it looks like to have a spiritual life that goes on and on and on forever and ever in a spiritual body. And he says, I will provide that for you someday if your trust is in me. So this morning, I wanted to take a little different approach to Easter. I only do this every few years. But, you know, I love every once in a while to remind those of us who already believe that our faith has reason. There's a reason we believe. Not just a blind leap of faith to grab onto some kind of religion because everybody needs a little religion in their life. For those of us who believe, I hope it deepens our confidence in everything Jesus stood for and teaches us, that we know that He's the real thing, that He's the risen Son of God. Perhaps for some of you today who came on Easter, and maybe this is just kind of an Easter tradition, I want to challenge you to take a hard look at Jesus because He is real and His claims are real and, his, and, 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 if, and if He rose from the dead, everything else that He says about life and about God and about the need for faith in Him When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he meant it, and it's true. My heart for you is that you would embrace him on a personal level as your Savior, not just just the guy behind the festivities of the day. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much. The band comes to lead us in some response and some worship. Um, Thank you so much that we have a faith that when we look at it and test it, and examine it with depth, that what we learn is that uh, we can trust you and we can trust it. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the risen Christ. I thank you that he's alive today. I need him. I pray that if we have friends here today who have never embraced him on a personal level, placed their faith in him, I would invite them to pray with me right now and just say, Lord Jesus, As I listen this morning, I sense and I'm hearing truth. And I do believe, I do place my faith in you as my Savior and my Lord. I ask you to come into my life. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Change me. Change me. Thank you for all that you did for me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Place my trust in you today. I follow you today. I choose you today. Lord, even as we give now as part of our worship tradition here at Seacoast, Lord, we give, we give because you gave Christ for us. So we want to give back to you with generosity in Jesus' name.